Hello everyone, welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Amaka Inanya. She is an assistant professor of nephrology here at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, let her tell us a little bit more about herself. Yeah, sure. So I've been uh, at the University of Pennsylvania for about a year and a half now. Um, I did my, I'm from the Philadelphia area originally. I did my undergraduate studies at Cornell University, my medical school at Meharry Medical College. Um, residency and fellowship were at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Massachusetts General Hospital. And then I did a few years of faculty at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. Got it. And you're a nephrologist. Um, so I understand that you're doing kind of an interesting type of work as a nephrologist, mm-hmm. um, which is related to palliative care. Mm-hmm. Um, that's mm-hmm. something I hadn't really like thought about until I met you. Yeah. Um, so it's not something that I think was historically been really emphasized in medical school. So palliative care is basically the treatment of serious illness. So having a focus on patient experience and improving quality of life for patients, mostly who have chronic diseases. Um, and then as they transition towards the end of life, really focusing on helping support them through that process, as well as their caregivers. So caregiver support, um, hospice, bereavement support, et cetera. So that's really, a, it's a very broad spectrum of care that's relatively new as an internal medicine-based specialty. Right, but you know, from the perspective of nephrology, you know, I often just think about, I mean, not just, but like, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, end-stage renal disease, dialysis, and renal transplant. Um, and the concept of palliative care fitting in that model, I mean, it's intuitive, right? Because it's a chronic illness that basically eventually means that you end up needing a transplant. And if you can't get the transplant, you know, kidney, you know, renal failure eventually leads to death. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so right. what I want to talk to you about today is sort of like the broad spectrum of, um, renal health disparities Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um you know thinking about uh one for example um we don't i guess like in a general population have a good grasp i feel you know i'm lucky to be in medical school and kind of understand like all the different things that can lead to people needing dialysis but i don't feel like that's as much um a thing that people are aware of Mm -hmm. right we just Mm -hmm. hear about people who are on dialysis but it can be a little nebulous yeah, so, so kidney disease is something that um, historically has been described as a silent disease. So I have, I have my clinic, my outpatient clinic where I see patients, and I can say at least a few times a month I'll have a patient come in who is completely unaware of their kidney disease. And it can be as advanced to the point where we're needing to plan for dialysis or uh, kidney transplant evaluation. But essentially, kidney disease, chronic kidney disease is defined as having your kidneys working less than 60% for a total of three months. The number one cause of kidney disease in the United States is diabetes, fall very closely by hypertension. So those are the number one and two causes of kidney disease, and that's usually because of damages from those illnesses over a long period of time is what we see manifesting as kidney disease. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we already know that both diabetes and hypertension sort of disproportionately have uh, an impact on minority communities, especially Black and Latinx um, populations. So I guess... Uh, from that perspective, that would translate to 
rates of chronic kidney disease and ancestral disease? So it's it's interesting that the chronic kidney dis- disease disparity in terms of at least specifically for Black patients, we don't see the same disproportionate uh, diagnoses in Black patients that we do for ESRD. And so mm-hmm. just to kind of quickly back up about nomenclature, ESRD is when a patient has reached stage five chronic kidney disease and is using some type of modality for treatment. So that could be transplant, that could be dialysis. Mm -hmm. What we see for proportions of black patients specifically who are diagnosed with ESRD is that it's about 30 to 33% when we know that the U.S. population of blacks is around 13 to 15%. Mm -hmm. We don't see that same disparities for for the incidence of chronic kidney disease. And there's many reasons for that. Um, But I think one that people focus on is that when blacks have kidney disease, they tend to progress more quickly than other races to end-stage renal disease or ESRD. Got it. So my other question, so I I was thinking about progression, but Mm -hmm. also could it be that CKD is sort of underdiagnosed and Mm -hmm. that people present, um, you know, like clinically at the time of ESRD or Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm, close to mm -hmm, it? mm -hmm. Like I said, there's many reasons for that. Um, People are presenting late. Um, I know we'll get to this later, but the diagnosis of chronic kidney disease, there's race in a lot of the formulas that are used, Mm -hmm. um, which actually um, may be missing some of the diagnoses if we're we're looking specifically at those those equations that we use to diagnose chronic kidney disease. So I think it's multifactorial. People are presenting late, people are progressing quickly, Um, we have equations that uh, may be missing uh, some of the population that have chronic kidney disease. Um, There's many reasons for that discrepancy. Mm -hmm. So one of my previous guests was Dr. Jenny Tsai. She's an emergency medicine resident um, at Yale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talked about race-based medicine and Mm -hmm. how sometimes, you know, race, which is in itself kind of a nebulous like criteria mm-hmm. um, to like insert in equations or like statistical discrimination or even you know clinical decision making, um, you know can be a bit problematic. And I know uh, kidney health is one of those areas mm-hmm. where when thinking about uh, one of the um, one of the metrics that's used to measure kidney function, eGFR, mm-hmm. um, there's there is a sort of like correction for mm-hmm. race there. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, I've seen. Uh, publications, I think maybe one even by you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. I didn't about, want to say that, but yes. Yes, I, I read I read that paper you wrote. Yes. <laughs> um, about how race is used in um, calculation of EGFR mm-hmm. and what that means, or sort of what are the implications for kidney health, especially in, within the context of health disparities. Yeah, so it's so I just want to start off by saying it's super complicated. Okay, mm-hmm. it's not an easy. I don't think anyone has a straight answer for this. Um, but if you think about the equations that use creatinine to estimate kidney function at the bedside, which is the equations that we use, there's two or three big ones that have been um, that have been implemented in clinical care where you can basically estimate someone's kidney function. It stands for, EGFR stands for Estimated Glomerular Filtration Rate um, using creatinine. That's problematic in multiple ways because the tests that have looked at these equations used um, substances like uh, that could directly measure kidney function to to statistically estimate glomerular function. When you use creatinine in those equations, you see 
variability within the race. When you measured the kidney function between the different races, you also saw variability. So nobody actually knows why there's a difference in measured glomerular filtration rate um, amongst different races. However, when you're using different biomarkers like cystatin C or some other ones, you don't see those same variability in terms of kidney function. So it's really unclear why we're seeing differences with one biomarker and not differences with another biomarker. And what does that actually mean? Does that mean that we're using race as a poor proxy for ancestry? Is there something about the biomarker itself that's sensitive to an environmental um, you know, uh, triggers that, are, that we're seeing differences? None of that has been looked at. And so it's really, really hard um, to, to figure out why we're seeing those changes. Now, taking a step forward, what does that mean for disparities? That means that um, the equations that they used saw that blacks specifically had higher kidney function when you measured it directly at the same creatinine level. So for blacks and whites, at the same creatinine level, serum creatinine, they had higher kidney function. So when we use the estimated glomerular function um, rate equations with creatinine, that is placing black patients with a higher kidney function. So if you think about it, the guidelines that we use in the nephrology community say that you're supposed to refer somebody for nephrology care at an EGFR of 30 or less. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to consider transplantation or you're actually eligible for transplant evaluation at an EGFR of 20 or less, even though you can start the discussion earlier than that. And so if you're using those equations that are putting blacks at to have a higher kidney function, true or not, they're missing out on the referrals and they're missing out on uh, referrals to nephrology as well as referral for transplant evaluation. Mm -hmm. and this is a population that historically has less referral for specialty care and less referral for transplant evaluation. So you can imagine what that equation is doing for the care of black patients specifically. Right, so if I understand this correctly, the EGFR by itself, it's just a proxy for kidney function, but mm -hmm. isn't necessarily like kidney function itself. That's right. It's an estimation. So it's a population right. estimation that mm -hmm. was derived statistically using measured kidney function. I see. That sounds problematic, if you ask me. Uh, but I'm just a medical student. Uh, so from that perspective... I, I want to sort of go into, you know, what that means when you think about treatment options when mm -hmm. patients start having, you know, sort of like issues with uh, chronic kidney disease and then uh, progressing to, uh, you know, stage four, stage five um, chronic kidney disease. You know, what what does treatment look like? And and then, you know, based on this estimate of like how quickly some people progress versus others, um you know, how long do they remain on the treatment options before they get to transplantation and whatnot? Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a big question with probably a big answer. I can tell you that as patients progress, the classic thing based on, of, of course, their comorbidities and how well there are is for you to, number one, consider kidney transplantation. That is the only cure for kidney disease. Mm -hmm. If you're not eligible for kidney transplantation, then the next step would be dialysis. Again, we're talking about someone who is healthy and thriving and has a good functional status, then you would consider dialysis. 
Now, which type of dialysis is another big question. I think politically, uh, we'll probably get to some of the executive the executive order that's been signed. But there's um, there's in center dialysis, which you would do in a center, usually hemodialysis, and then there's home based modalities. So you can do hemodialysis at home. You can also do another type called peritoneal dialysis. The most common type of dialysis in the United States is in-center dialysis. So you go to the clinic like what, every other day? You go to a clinic, you go three times a week. Uh, What's been studied to be the most effective of clearing all the toxins from your blood is four hours per treatment. So a total of 12 hours for for the week. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's very disruptive to lifestyle. Yes, Um, I'm sure. Yeah, it can cause new symptoms. it can, it's a, it's a, it's a big change, and a lot of patients are not aware of kind of what that entails in terms of lifestyle management. But again, for many reasons, it's the most common uh, type of treatment for um, patients who are not able to have a kidney transplant. So we have people who have to go to the dialysis treatment center three times a week, mm-hmm. times four hours, mm-hmm. right? And then, as far as I've learned as a med student, there is a other form of dialysis that you just mentioned, peritoneal dialysis, which mm-hmm. means that you get to be on treatment less often. Uh, or so, what does that mean, right, in terms of lifestyle mm-hmm. uh, and who gets, like, who's eligible for peritoneal dialysis versus hemodialysis? Mm-hmm. So, people who are eligible for peritoneal dialysis, there is a there is a slight difference. Um, patients need to have be able to be kind of functional. They need to be able to hold. So let me just back up and say what peritoneal dialysis is. Um, It's using the inner lining of your abdomen to serve as a dialysis membrane, essentially. So it's you're pouring, you have a catheter placed in your abdomen, you're pouring fluid in um, through that catheter, and then you're later draining it of all the waste. So that's the dialysis piece of it. So there are these big bags that you have to be able, that you need to essentially be doing this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You first start off by doing it manually a few times a day. So you're instilling, you're hanging the bag. It's flowing, the fluid is flowing with with gravity into your belly. You're letting it sit in there and then you drain and then you transition to an overnight um, peritoneal dialysis uh, machine and, and then you can do it overnight. So people need to be able to lift heavy bags and multiple heavy bags um, to hook this up to the machine or to, to drain it uh, manually in the beginning. Um, having a lot of social support at home, you need to be able to see, you need to be able to not have really bad neuropathy so you can have a very sterile technique when you're instilling the fluid and when you're draining it. So there is a slight difference in terms of how functional you are, uh, your functional status, and and how you're able to, if you're able to handle that. And then the social support piece is is, um, very important because some people just need a break, right? You're doing that all the time, you know, every four hours, every six hours, and overnight, and then it's really hard to do it by yourself. And so if you're by yourself with no social support, it can be very hard. So those are really essentially the differences um, in terms of who's eligible for peritoneal and who's eligible for uh, dialysis. But it is, it's not a, um, when I say, so there's been some thoughts that if you ask a nephrologist what type of dialysis they would want if they had ESRD, it's peritoneal dialysis normally, because once you switch over to the nighttime version, the continuous version overnight, then you can go about your day regularly. You don't have to go to a dialysis center I had a patient that was teaching all the way to retirement. No one ever knew he was on dialysis. He would tuck his little catheter in his in his belt, 
no one ever knew, right? He would do it overnight. And so it does allow you to maintain a certain quality of life if, again, you have a function, the, a certain type of functional status if you have this social support, if that makes sense. I see. And is that equitably distributed? So yeah, there's so, so no. So there's differences in terms of um, the patients that the type of patients that we see that get peritoneal dialysis. Um, his, historically, black and brown patients are typically not on peritoneal dialysis. The reasons for that are usually referral based. What their clinician is assessing about them um, in terms of uh, what they think will be the most appropriate for the patient. But also peritoneal dialysis is not done as frequently in the United States as other countries. And so um, as opposed to dialysis, if you, hemodialysis in the in-center hemodialysis, if you send your patient to that, a new dialysis uh, doctor takes over, you're kind of, you may or may not be managing that patient on dialysis. For peritoneal dialysis, you are staying with that patient that you've been seeing this whole time for chronic kidney disease, and you're managing them with peritoneal dialysis throughout, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of physicians don't feel well trained in that as well. So they'll refer to hemodialysis because of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of, there's less education about the home dialysis therapies that's still building in the United States. So to actually teach patients, to train them how to do it, a lot of centers don't have that, or that's not as prioritized as the in-center hemodialysis. So there's that causes racial disparities. I see. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when people at this stage, they're already basically ESRD, right? Mm -hmm. What you mm -hmm. described earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that um, ESRD is like the only condition that's like protected such that it, it's always covered by Medicare. Right. So that's very interesting. So dialysis was created in the 1960s. And then in 1972, there was a Social Security Act that was signed that said that Medicare would pay for these patients going forward. That doesn't cover 100% of patients. Some patients have private insurance, um, some patients pay out of pocket, etc. But it does pay for the majority of um, patients with ESRD. That's correct. The government pays for it. So is there, like, what's the, I guess, rationale? I mean, is it because, like, if you if it's not covered, you're going to die, basically? It's like... So, I mean, it's interesting how it was, it was developed out of beneficence to help mm -hmm. patients because when dialysis was created, uh, when it was first being used, it was kind of being rationed, mm -hmm. right? And so people were uh, kind of at whim being dis or being selected for this, this, uh, this treatment that could extend your life. And so... After many um, tes testimonies from uh, physicians, the government decided just to, to start to cover it, and that's that's really how it became um, a Medicare-based uh, uh, therapy. I see. Mm -hmm. um, so I understand also that, you know, well, at least based on what I've come across in the literature, is that when, uh, you know, someone may go into, like, acute kidney failure uh, during a hospital admission, uh, and it's like so bad that maybe they initiate dialysis mm -hmm. uh, in the hospital and then they discharge them, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on dialysis. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're like sort of like condemned to dialysis. Right, right. So the, so what are the chances of recovery? It really, mm -hmm. it really matters about where, let's say you have, so for instance, I feel like every, every year this happened, we had a marathon runner that would come in with really bad rhabdomyolysis that oh would boy. completely shut down their kidneys and start dialysis. That's, that's the classic example of someone who's super healthy, no issues with their kidneys, starts dialysis, is able to recover. 
Now, depending on if you have chronic kidney disease as a baseline, the chances of you recovering are really based on the severity of your kidney disease. So you may have acute kidney injury and recover. Medicare usually mandates a 90-day period to see if you recover during that period before they'll start to, to pay for it. I Historically, see. that's what that's what's been the case. So is there any evidence, right, that um, I guess that black people do better on dialysis compared to um, others? Yeah, there was plenty of studies that uh, up until very recently showed that blacks typically had longer survival on dialysis compared to other races. Mm -hmm. And then a very interesting study um, came out in Jason a few months ago. Sorry, what's Jason? Oh, the Journal of the American Society of Nephrology. It's one of our top journals. Um, And so that came out, and uh, what they looked at was dialysis discontinuation and how that affected survival. Um, And what they saw was that given that we know that there's differential proportions of patients that discontinue dialysis, so whites being more likely to discontinue dialysis compared to... In favor of transplant or just discontinuing it altogether? Just discontinuing it altogether and Mm -hmm. perhaps going to hospice, that type of discontinuation. Mm -hmm. that and blacks have lower rates of dialysis discontinuation that when you actually adjusted for those disparate rates that the survival benefit decreased significantly Um, and i've been waiting for that study to go out because as you know i'm very interested in palliative care and end-of-life care for dialysis patients and ckd patients especially disparities among in that realm so that was a really very interesting study and very telling that as you've already described with some of your other guests, that this whole race, you know, things being so dependent on race, like blacks are doing better, their survival is better, is we really have to look at those things critically and ask those questions critically to really get a better understanding and not just attributing that to race. And so thus the notion, this like now proven to be false notion that like remaining on dialysis um, sort of like confers an additional mortality benefit does that have an effect on people's likelihood of being referred for transplant or being considered or just receiving a transplant at all? I think time will tell. I mean, that, that piece of evidence just came out. I, mm-hmm. I think there's been multiple efforts and advocacy groups that are trying to push for better referral for transplant evaluation. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the clinician referral is really driving a lot of the disparities that we see. There's been programs that are focused on educating patients more, really helping with the process of finding a living donor, getting them waitlisted. But the other piece of it is the, is the clinician uh, referral base and incentivizing patients, uh, incentivizing clinicians more to refer their patients more. And so this new executive order that was just signed, that's uh, called the Advancing American Kidney Health Initiative, was just signed in June of last year. By who, he who shall not be named. Oh, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big Harry Potter <laughs> fan. Um, okay, so it was signed by the current administration. Um, and it was actually a very monumental, um, monumental order for the field of nephrology. And the goal is that in five years, starting this year, in five years, that 80% of all patients with ESRD will either have a transplant or a home therapy. Mm-hmm. So it's really revolutionizing the care that we have for our patients. So the incentives that they're, bu- they're building into this, um, these po- the financial incentives are very uh, aligned with increasing the referral for transplant evaluation. It's actually a, a wonderful thing. Got it. 
Uh, and so from the perspective of palliative care, right, mm-hmm. for those who are sort of at that end of life phase and who may not be good candidate for a transplant perhaps because they have other chronic illnesses that maybe they wouldn't like you know make it through surgery or, or recovery mm-hmm. from um, from a transplant what i guess i'm curious what that end of life care look like in the icu versus in hospice care and what are interventions being sort of like put in place to address disparities in the quality of end of life care okay so again, this is a multi this is a multi-dimensional question. It's very complicated. Um, because Medicare does pay for ESRD, the financial incentives are skewed towards dialysis. Mm-hmm. What we're learning from other countries, mostly um, outside of the United States, so UK, um, Australia, Canada, we're we're seeing that not everybody does as well with dialysis. So in particular, patients who are 75 plus with multiple comorbidities or 80, there may not even be a survival benefit. So the question is like, why would you even start someone on dialysis? We already just talked about how disruptive it can be there's many complications that can occur once you start dialysis mm-hmm. um, and so you know my research is really focused on improving patient experience for patients who may not be a candidate so really focusing on older patients who are 75 plus 80 or frail patients so there's a disproportionate amount of patients who are young who have chronic kidney disease that have uh, frailty and so frailty is associated with higher mortality, higher hospitalizations, etc. So really focused on my my research is focused on educating those patients more about the true risk and benefits of dialysis as it stands now. What's been shown is that patients, once they start dialysis, especially in the United States, they felt blindsided. They, they feel like they weren't really truly informed. There was one study that came out of Canada that showed that a large amount of patients regretted their decision to start dialysis, which to me is just ethically and more, morally just despicable, right? Mm-hmm. To, that patients are doing this and then feeling like they didn't have a choice. Um, and so really educating the patients who observational literature has shown may not benefit from dialysis about this non-dialytic therapy um, is is key. So this non-dialytic therapy is really focused on slowing down progression of kidney disease, so aggressive control of blood pressure, diabetes, changing your diet um, in a way that your progression is going to decrease, um, and then also focused on symptom management and quality of life. I mean, these patients are you know very old and, and some of them are frail, and so really not focus on longevity, but maintaining your current quality of life. Not doing dialysis in the United States it's incredibly, it's much easier to transition to hospice. As it stands now, the ESRD Medicare benefit directly conflicts with the ESRD, uh, the the Medicare hospice benefit directly conflicts with the Medicare ESRD benefit. So essentially you can qualify for hospice if you have a terminal illness that's not related to kidney disease, which requires you to stop dialysis, which Mm -hmm. is incredibly hard for, imagine you don't even get the risk and benefits really clear when you're starting dialysis, and then all of a sudden you're told that you have to stop to do hospice. It's just, it's not a good framework. Mm -hmm. And so we're really, um, my research and and many other individuals across the country are really starting to build these programs called uh, conservative kidney management programs 
or medical management without dialysis programs where you're really centered on these patients that may not have a survival benefit, may not improve their quality of life or dialysis, and really focus on the medical management of the disease. So I have one more question more related to how the families, uh, you know, especially at the end of life stage, mm-hmm. uh, might feel or react um, to uh, the different modalities of treatment. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. my understanding based on a recent study is that oftentimes when you have black patients at the end of life, so in the ICU, um, for many reasons, physicians tend to sort of like engage in more aggressive and invasive treatments mm-hmm. um, for um, uh, for their black patients who are in, in that sort of like end of life um, phase of care. Um, and there was a New York Times article um, that was written by critical care physicians where, you know, what she described was this sort of like sense of guilt mm-hmm. and feeling afraid that maybe the family is going to think that um, as a critical care physician, she or her colleagues are not doing like their absolute best um, to save the black patient. It's weird, like reverse guilt, because obviously oftentimes there's a perception that um, if you're not doing something for your patient, you're afraid that they're going to think you're being racist. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that reverses the intensity of care that you would otherwise see in um, non-end-of-life settings where, like, any anywhere else just about, right, black people get sort of, like, less aggressive care. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the end, at the end-of-life stage, it's the opposite. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how do families react to this sort of, like, more novel approach to, mm-hmm. um, to kidney care at the end of life? So, so you, you hit the nail on the head perfectly with this. This is why I'm interested in what I'm doing. As a, a nephrology trainee, I noticed that in the ICU, and I had a, a, a large amount of ICU time as a nephrology fellow, that in particular black patients were really having, uh, were having a lot of suffering in the ICU. So they didn't have um, good understanding of what they were getting into. Um, a lot of them had not done advanced care planning, so it was kind of like a lot of guilt on caregivers and loved ones who had to make medical decisions. Um, there was distrust that they had in particular of, um, of withdrawing care and not doing everything that you can for the patient. And that seemed to be alleviated um, with me as a black physician going to talk to those families, really communicating in, in a certain manner. We need to Re- replicate y'all. <laughs> <laughs> that's already been, that's, I'm sure that's a different podcast episode, but yes, we, we do need to be replicated. Yes, we do. Um, and, and, and really, you know, treating people like they're human, right? Mm-hmm. I think you can really, end of life care is so complicated in the United States for so many reasons. We have an overworked um, clinician syst- uh, cl- clinician base. We have patients that are getting more, more and more and more sick. Um, and so there's communication breakdown, there mis- there's mistrust, there's not a good understanding of what they're getting into. And so it's super complicated. It's very, very complicated. And I actually don't know the answer. You know, my work is focused on, on on relationship building, education, communication with patients to see if we can alleviate some of those racial disparities. But there also has to be a lot of training on the clinician piece about unconscious bias, about communication, um, about some of the things that were described in the New York Times article. You know, having, I think in, in the same New York Times article, they were talking about having a champion on your team that may be black, like someone that could help. Um, you know, with the communication, et cetera. But we have to really think about having multidisciplinary teams to really help alleviate 
these disparities. Um, so it's, it's, it's very, very complicated, but I'm very hopeful that especially with uh, the political kind of uh, changes that we're seeing with incentivizing people to do other things with ACOs and really, you know, being mindful of um, patients and, and cost of hospitalizations, et cetera, I think that is actually going to change the landscape quite a bit. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure hearing about your work as well as um, the landscape of um, disparities in kidney care. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is fun. Pleasure was mine. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.